0: If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 15 today as Jesus continues to show us how his fulfillment of the law enables, enables us to walk in true righteousness, the righteousness of the new kingdom that he modeled perfectly for us. We said last week that here in chapter 6 verses 1 through 21, Jesus is still concerned with this idea of kingdom righteousness. But his focus is on how we as followers of Jesus practice our personal righteousness, how we act in terms of private devotion to Jesus. He specifically mentions giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting, though the principles here apply to all piety and all acts of religious devotion. Verse one sort of sets out the the overarching warning and instruction. Matthew 6, one says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. We summarized that like this. In your personal righteousness, seek the praise and glory of God more than you crave the applause of people. In other words, don't let the goal of your righteousness be recognition from others, but let it be the desire to praise God and to honor him Alone. And if that's the case, then you will receive true reward, true reward from the Father. We summarized, uh, or this instruction uh, is, is, is here because we are so prone to turn our acts of devotion to the Father into means of glorifying ourselves. Our hearts twist the gifts of grace and the commands of God into means of building up our own pride. And apart from the, the power of the Spirit and the renewal of our minds, this is how we will always act. But because of Christ and the fact that we are new creations in Him, we have been enabled to walk in personal righteousness in a way that honors God more than ourselves and results in more joy and flourishing than the praises of other people could ever bring. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, here Jesus teaches us about prayer. And he is inviting us into that, that joy and that flourishing of kingdom righteousness. Preaching on, on prayer often leads to despair, both for the hearers and for the preacher. We, we simply, we, we hear prayer and we, and we, we always we see are the ways that we fall short of what God commands of us in prayer. And even what our, our new hearts desire with regard to prayer. We we feel prayerless and helpless to do anything about it. We feel like we always try to pray more, and it never happens. Conviction about our prayer lives is good, and it's right, and it's even what Jesus is aiming for in part here. But I also think that he is inviting us into a new way of thinking about how we talk to God. And this new way is meant to release us from seeing prayer as a burden to bear or as some sort of a ladder to climb, or as a box to check off in our daily lives. And he's changing it into a way to approach the Father with joy and simplicity, a way to come to him with with self-forgetfulness and with focus. Simply put, Matthew 6, 5 through 15 says to us, let your prayers be neither self-seeking nor thoughtless, but sincere and thoughtful. That's our big idea for today. Let your prayers be neither self-seeking nor thoughtless, but sincere and thoughtful. If prayer is a conversation with God, then it may be helpful to think about all of the the other conversations that we have in our lives. Think about the times that you speak with others, and it's obvious that that the person you're talking to is only promoting themselves. That, That their main concern is to insert themselves and their thoughts into this exchange that you're having. Or you might recognize times that you also have had selfish motives in conversations. Times when you desire to appear smarter or more together than you really are. Times when your goal is self-promotion rather than shared dialogue. You might also think about times you have spoken to others and and their words have appeared thoughtless. They are distracted by their phone or they're looking behind you waiting for someone else that they'd rather talk to. Or, Or maybe they're simply reciting some spiel that they've memorized. There are also times when you and I have engaged in a conversation out of obligation or with the hopes of getting out of it as fast as as we can or getting something out of that conversation as fast as we can. As we think about these everyday kinds of conversations, we can hopefully see that that we often approach God in similar ways. In prayer, we can be self-seeking and thoughtless, prideful and going through the motions. But now thinking about those, those difficult and, and bad conversations, think, think about a conversation with another person where they were sincere and they were thoughtful. Th- their words were not meant to impress you or to persuade you. They were just simple, honest, straightforward words. They didn't drone on simply to fill the empty space, space between you, but they were, they were caring and they were attentive in their words. There was a freedom of exchange, a lack of pretension, and a a natural flow to what was said. Those are wonderful conversations. Those are real, solid, true conversations. That's the way we speak with people that we long to know and that we know well. And that's the way that we are to speak to God in prayer. Jesus tells us, let your prayers be neither self-seeking nor thoughtless, but sincere and thoughtful. Let's hear how Jesus spells that out for us here in Matthew 6, verses 5 through 15. I want to read this whole section. Our focus is going to be on verses 5 through 8. Uh, Next week, we're actually going to move on to the teaching regarding fasting in verses 16 through 18. And then we're going to come back to the Lord's Prayer and spend a good bit of time thinking about about this instruction. I want us to take our time here because if if prayer is supposed to be central to our Christian lives, and if the Lord's Prayer is one of the great teachings of Jesus on prayer, not to mention its place of centrality here in the Sermon on the Mount, then I think it's wise for us to pause and to meditate on what is being said to us here. And so we'll begin that study in the Lord's Prayer on July 5th, uh, Lord willing. For now, Let's read Matthew 6, verses 5 through 15. And again, we'll focus on verses 5 through 8. Matthew 6, Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for the many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's begin with sort of an overview of the the structure and the flow of these verses. And then we'll seek to dig into them and apply them. If you were with us last week, then the parallels between verses 2 through 4 and verses 5 through 6 should be obvious. Many of the words and the phrases are exactly the same. Uh, The introduction is the same. When you give, when you pray, here's what not to do. And then the contrast comes later, which is also parallel. But when you give and when you pray, here's what you should do. Both teach us to not be like the hypocrites, the religious actors of that day. Both speak about not performing our righteous deeds on the streets or in the synagogues, but instead to act in secret. Both speak of rewards, whether the temporary temporary reward of earthly praise or the eternal reward that comes from the Father. And so given all these similarities, it's not going to be surprising that the instruction of verses 5 through 6 will be very similar to that of verses 2. Through four. This time, though, of course, focused on prayer. Verses 7 through 15 have, a, have similar structural elements to these two, first two sections, but there are also some differences. They, they begin with the, the familiar words, and when you pray, do not. But then the instruction for how to pray says, pray then like this. And what follows is the Lord's Prayer. Also, this instruction is not given in contrast to the hypocrites, but rather in contrast to the Gentiles. So we find that not only should God's children not pray like the religious actors, but they should also not pray like the pagans and those who worship false gods. As followers of Jesus, our way of praying is to be unique in the world, unlike anything else. These two parallel instructions on prayer uh, in in verses 5 through 6 and then verses 7 through 15, they, they say to us, let your prayers... Be neither self-seeking, like the hypocrites, nor thoughtless, like the Gentiles. But instead, they should be sincere and thoughtful. Two main points today. Let's consider first that our prayers should be sincere, not self-seeking. Sincere, not self-seeking. Times of prayer were observed three times each day in Jewish religious practice, just as we see Daniel. Uh, doing that in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel instructs us that that such a regimented, devoted prayer life can be a genuine sign of devotion to God, even if it is done before the eyes of others, as some of Daniel's prayers obviously were. In other words, the issue that Jesus is addressing here is not the routine of praying three times a day. Yes, we need to beware of letting our prayer life become mechanical and thoughtless. We'll see more about that later. But a pattern of prayer that has us seeking the Lord at set times each day can in fact be a very wonderful thing. Scripture seems to be clear that the lives of Christians are to be marked by prayer. We are to pray without ceasing, Paul says, allowing every moment of our lives to be saturated in prayer. And if that's going to be true, then we need to develop some habits of seeking the Lord. So we should not shun prayer times or, or rituals because of the risk that's inherent in them. Rejecting these practices could run the equally dangerous risk, if not even more dangerous risk, of of making us prayerless Christians. In fact, setting times of prayer in your day could be a key path towards growing in this sincere, thoughtful kind of prayer life. So Jesus is not against the the specific times of prayer of the the Pharisees and the religious leaders, but his instruction is that, that our prayers must be sincere not self-seeking the hypocrites had turned these daily prayer times into opportunities to seek the praise of others It, it seems that some even timed their walking through town so that that they would be found in sort of conspicuous spots and public street corners when the afternoon prayer time came and they had to stop and pray they also took great pride in the opportunities that they had to pray in the synagogue before the eyes of others but their longing for the admiration and the praise of others kept them from sincere communion with the Father. John Stott draws the the parallel from the previous verses when he writes this. As we are to give out of genuine love for people, so we are to pray out of a genuine love for God. We must never use either of these exercises as a pious cloak for self-love. When we are focused on ourselves in prayer, we will seek the applause of other people above all else. And when we do, Jesus says that the the reward we will receive is that and that only. We will be given the praise of others and nothing else. In contrast to, to praying in the streets and the synagogues, Jesus tells his followers to pray in their rooms, to pray in their closet given the open floor plans of that day, this is probably some a reference maybe to like a, a broom closet of sorts. It may even refer to what some uh, have called the water closet, the bathroom. The, the reality for many of us is that the bathroom is one of the few places, if not the only private place in our homes. And not only do closets and the like provide privacy, but also secrecy. And that is the goal. Not, not to only pray in closets, uh, that's not the, the point that you have to find a closet, and that's the only place you're allowed to pray, but rather finding a secret place of prayer. If our focus is on God and growing closer to him, then the practical, practical advice that Jesus offers makes perfect sense. Pray in private, pray in secret. Prayer in secret makes the temptation to be praised by others much less feasible, And prayer in secret is done with the knowledge that God, who is all-knowing and all-seeing, hears and sees us. Sadly, we often seek privacy and secrecy, not to pray, but to sin. We think that walls guard us from the prying eyes of others, and we fail to recognize that there is a God who sees all. Like Adam and Eve, we imagine that we can hide from God. And in this sad irony, we keep our sinful lives hidden and then we parade our prayer lives before others. This is textbook hypocrisy. And it's not the way of the follower of Jesus. Instead, we are to live lives that are in in the light, that, that our sins and our shortcomings are to be lived before God in confession and repentance constantly. We live lives of integrity, lives that admit our sinfulness and our need. And then we pray in secret because we long for communion with the Father, not the praise of others. It may be that this deep communion with God is is the reward that's spoken of here. If our desire is for closeness with the Father, then secret prayer gives us what we desire. Communion with the Father. But as with giving to the poor, God being glorified through our lives is another reward. When we pray in secret and God answers our prayers and draws us close to himself, he alone receives praise and glory. Now, before we move on to the next idea, we might ask the question, should we never pray in a way that can be seen by others? Should all of our praying be done in secret? Our, Our prayer meetings and and public prayers and the like all wrong, according to this teaching. Uh, to say so would, as we have often said, it would be to act like, act with the kind of legalism that Jesus is, is seeking to keep us from falling into. As always, Jesus is concerned primarily with what? He's concerned with our hearts. Whether in private or in public, are we praying to be seen and heard by others? Or is our primary desire to be seen and heard by God, Are we praying to be seen by others or to be seen and heard by God? Certainly public prayers, whether in, in small groups or in church or anywhere else, they can lend themselves to us seeking glory from other people. And the remedy would seem to be not to never pray in public, but rather to let our private prayer lives outweigh our public prayer lives. So that our secret prayer is what shapes the way that we pray before others. The, the solution to self-seeking public prayer is not less prayer, but rather more prayer. I think primarily more private secret prayer. So we've seen that in contrast to the hypocrites, kingdom prayer is sincere, not self-seeking. Next we see that kingdom prayer is thoughtful, not thoughtless. Kingdom prayer is thoughtful, not thoughtless. The kind of prayer spoken of in verses five and six seems to be more focused on, as the psalmist says, pouring out our hearts before God. Prayers of personal devotion, prayers of adoration and praise to God, prayers of confession and repentance of our sin, prayers of thanksgiving and gratitude. But here in verses seven and eight, the focus seems to be more on, on supplication. I think it's more on prayers asking God to answer specific requests and desires and needs that we have. And as we come to God with our needs and desires, we are told not to come to him as the Gentiles go to their gods. Specifically, we are not to pile up words and phrases thinking that God will hear us because of the amount of our words. To pray like the Gentiles is to attempt to be heard by God through thoughtless mechanical, wordy prayers. It takes prayer from a personal, relational interaction and turns it into a thoughtless transaction. It's the difference between a conversation that you have with someone that you know and trust deeply and the conversation that you have when someone is trying to sell you something over the phone or at your doorstep. A good salesman is trained to get a lot of words in quickly in an effort to persuade you to buy what he's selling. And that is how the Gentiles approach their gods, with a long and repetitive and thoughtless script. But when we pray, we are not to babble and we are not to ramble. We are not to be verbose and pretentious. We do not speak without thinking or heap up empty phrases. Rather, we are thoughtful in our words, even if they are few. As a matter of application, let me say that this doesn't mean that written prayers are unhelpful. Jesus, as a way of applying this teaching, is in fact going to give us a model prayer to pray. We can also remember that the book of Psalms is a book of prayers. There is certainly nothing wrong with using the psalmist's words as the words of our prayers, nor are prayer books or historic prayers to to be avoided. I've been helped deeply in praying by by praying through the the prayers of Paul or those in the Book of Common Prayer or a book called The Valley of Vision or one of my new favorites, Every Moment Holy. These these prayers are helpful. We, We should not read or pray any of these prayers without thinking. But if they are used rightly, they, in fact, keep us from thoughtless prayer. Sometimes we babble. And we ramble in prayer because we are not being guided by God's word or by the helpful prayers of others. So don't think that Jesus is saying that spontaneous prayers are the only genuine ones. Written prayers are invaluable to our growth. Now the reason given in verse 8 for not babbling on as those who worship other gods do is because our Heavenly Father knows what we need before we ask him. Look again. Um, at verse 8, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. There seem to be two uh, main ideas in there. One, we don't babble on because God knows what we need. Because as we've already said, he, he sees all and he knows all. And, and number two, we don't thoughtlessly recite incantations because God is our father. And that's not how you talk to your father. Uh, Put succinctly, Jesus tells us not to pray like the pagans because our God is greater than their gods and because our relationship with our God is deeper. Let's think about these two things. We don't pray like the pagans because, first, our God is greater. Our God is greater. We might remember the account in 1 Kings 18 when the the prophets of Baal and Elijah went toe-to-toe on Mount Carmel. And the prophets of Baal, you remember, cried out all day long, cutting themselves and limping around their altar, asking Baal to send down fire. But Baal never responded, no matter how many words they heaped up. And then after dousing the altar in water, Elijah prays, and he prays this simple prayer in 1 Kings 18. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Elijah prayed a simple, straightforward, thoughtful prayer focused on the glory of God. And with that two-sentence prayer, Elijah called down fire from heaven. He did it in a way that all the efforts and all the words of the prophets of Baal could not. Why? Because our God is greater than all other gods, and he knows exactly what we need. We pray simply with the knowledge that God knows what we need. God's all-knowing nature could, could be a reason uh, to not not only to, to not rattle on in prayer, but it could also be used as an, an excuse to not pray at all. We might be tempted to say that since God already knows what we need, we don't need to pray. But such would be to go to the wrong extreme, and it would be to forget, forget the relational focus of prayer that Jesus is really calling us into here. Imagine, if you will, a parent sitting next to a child who is frustrated with something that they are working on maybe a homework assignment or a project. And the more the child tries, the more frustrated he or she gets. As their anger rises, sitting right next to them is a parent, a parent who is ready and able to help. And yet in parents, you know this feeling, the parent is not willing to help, is not going to help until he or she is asked, Sometimes we wait to be asked. We know what our kids need, but we wait for them to ask. Of course, that doesn't only happen with children. How often we hear or speak the words, I wish he would have asked for some help. I would have loved to lend a hand. In a similar way, God knows what we need. God knows exactly what we need. And there are times when he gives us just that, even if we don't ask for it. But often he is calling out to us. He's saying, ask. I know what you need. Just ask and it will be given to you. We don't need to form a perfectly worded prayer for him to come with power into our lives. Nor do we need to recite the same prayer 70 times a day. He is at our side. He knows our need. He is able and he is willing. We simply need to ask. In contrast to the Gentiles, we hear Jesus calling us to thoughtful simplicity in our prayer. Thoughtful simplicity. And as we we pray in these ways, we do it knowing that the goal of prayer is not simply finding some way to get what we want. That's not the goal of prayer. The goal of prayer is building our relationship with the Father. And in doing that, it's, it's molding our will and our desires to his desires and his will. Does prayer change things? In God's sovereign plan, yes, it does. Uh, Prayer, said Spurgeon, is the slender nerve that moves the omnipotent arm of God. Prayer may be the most powerful tool, tool that we as the people of God have. But beyond prayer simply changing things around us, it changes what is in us. Prayer shapes our hearts and our desires to the heart and desires of God. John Calvin said this of prayer, and I find it very helpful. Believers do not pray with the view of informing God about things unknown to him, or of exciting him to do his duty, or of urging him as though he were reluctant. On the contrary, they pray in order that they may arouse themselves to seek him, that they may exercise their faith in meditating on his promises, that they may relieve themselves of their anxieties. By pouring them into his bosom, in a word, that they may declare that from him alone they hope and expect, both for themselves and for others, all good things. In all of this, I think we hear the recurring theme, the recurring melody of the relational component of prayer. We pray differently, not only because our God is greater, but because our relationship is deeper. We pray different than the pagans because our relationship is deeper. In these 21 verses of chapter 6, God is referred referred to as as Father 10 times. And it is is this new relationship of having God as our caring and loving Father that makes Christian prayer unique. The gods of the Gentiles were statisticians. They were egotistical, maniacal, and fickle. And so they had to be appeased with many words, many sacrifices, and many incantations. But is our God, is our God swayed by the number of words that we use or the number of hours that we pray? Are his actions based on statistics? The number of of prayer wheels turned, the number of prayer flags hung. The number of Our Fathers or Hail Marys that we recite. Is that how our God works? Is that the kind of Father that he is? Uh, There's certainly a place for persistence in prayer. And and I think as we've seen in the Gospels, that Jesus sort of thinks about the minimum amount of prayer as one hour. Couldn't you just wait one hour with me in prayer? And so there is something about devoting time and effort to our prayers, surely. For late, We need to labor in our prayers. We need to pray without ceasing. But remember, remember that the story of the impertinent window, widow is not a call to nag God into submission. You remember that Jesus told of a certain widow who was seeking justice from an unjust judge. The judge had no interest in helping her, but because of this widow's persistence and impertinence, he relented and he gave her what she asked for. Now, Jesus doesn't tell that parable and then say, and so, if you nag God, and if you heap up enough words, he'll eventually hear you. That's not the point. No, he says in Luke eighteen seven through 8, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It's, it's this idea that if that judge listened to the woman because she persisted, how much more so will our Father in heaven listen to us as we call out to him night and day, pouring out our cares and concerns before him? Our God is not like the, that pagan judge. Our God is not like the other gods. He is a loving Father who knows what we need and longs to give it to us if we would simply ask. I would be remiss not to mention that Luke 18 reminds us that in recent days, many of us have found found ourselves praying for justice like that widow, more than we ever have before. And justice not for ourselves, but for others. Our eyes have been opened to injustices in our society especially in regard to race and we long for righteousness to fill our world and it's right and good to pray for justice and as we do uh, Luke 18 encourages to encourages us to say that we know that we are praying to a father who knows our needs before we ask him a, a father who cares for us and sympathizes with us and who knows the pain of all who face injustice. He is a Father who is able and willing to help us. He's a Father who calls us to faith and to prayer. We're gonna consider this idea of of praying to our Heavenly Father more in, in two weeks as we start thinking about the Lord's Prayer. But it's good to pause and say here that what sets our praying apart the gentiles and from the religious hypocrites for that matter is that we pray to god as our father it is that it is that relationship that changes everything it brings with it the conviction that says why have i neglected this kind of this gift in my life why am i not coming to my father more why am i not praying more but i think that relationship of father also brings with it the invitation to seek out the Father more and more, because we know of his great love for us. Let me encourage you, be convicted by this. Be convicted of our prayerlessness, of our lack of coming to the Father, but also be encouraged that he's sitting next to us and simply waiting for us to come and longing for us to come. Jesus' new kingdom teaching on prayer says this, Let your prayers be neither self-seeking nor thoughtless, but sincere and thoughtful. Said another way, we might say that those who are in Christ approach God in prayer, truly believing that he is their good and powerful father. Christians come to God as their father. That's the heart of our faith, because the gospel tells us that we we were separated from God because of our sin. And nothing that we could do, including the number of words that we heaped up in prayer to God, nothing we could do could restore us back into right relationship with the Father. But because of his love, he sent Jesus to live and to die and to rise again so that we could be made children of God through faith in Jesus. Our salvation and that new relationship shapes everything about us, and it shapes how we pray. We're not self-seeking but we are sincere. We speak to God as one who loves us and has drawn us to himself. And we're not thoughtless, but we are thoughtful, knowing that that God hears us in our simplicity and he treats us as his much loved children. When we neglect prayer, it's often because we are thinking about it in unchristian ways. Instead, let's come to our God in sincerity, in simplicity, with thoughtful words, with trust that he sees all and knows all and can do all that we ask of him. Let's not come as the hypocrites or the Gentiles, but let's come to God as Christians, as his children. And Christians are told to begin their prayers with acknowledging the life-changing truth that God is our Father. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the call to come to you in sincerity, to come to you with with thought and thoughtfulness, to come to you in simplicity, to come knowing, Lord, that you are our Father, that you love us and you care for us. Thank you for these words of Jesus. but may they cut to our hearts and convict us of our prayerlessness. But may they also call us back to you. Call us into communion with you. Call us to see who you are. Lord, that, that you are a God who knows what we need and longs to give us good gifts. Father, you are good.